I have seen a meme going around. A perfect marriage is just two imperfect people who refuse to give up on each other. I'm Emily Morgan, and this is The Grand Life. On the last episode, we talked with Bruce Frattenberg and Carol Hughes about something called gray divorce. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, you you might want to go back to season five, episode one, in order to kind of put this whole episode that we're doing right now in perspective. This is the part of our new format, you know, where every other episode will have a conversation about the previous one. So the even-numbered ones will have Emily and me, and we'll kind of be going back through what we heard, what we've thought about, what we learned. And hopefully this will give you added motivation to chime in. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of like the kinds of conversations we have at the dinner table about the the podcast as we've listened to it and, and put it together. So we started this episode with a quote that I've seen going around on social media. And like a lot of memes, the idea of a perfect marriage being two imperfect people who refuse to give up on each other really only covers one of many ideas about marriage. At least that's what I'm starting to conclude. Um, On the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a playwright, August Strindberg, who once said, could there be anything more terrifying than a husband and wife who hate each other? In between those two different things, there's the husband and wife where one refuses to give up and the other one wants to stick with it. I mean, there's not like it's not cut and dry. It's not just, you know, the two imperfect people sticking together and then the ones that just give up. So in the last episode, Bruce and Carol talked about reasons for the divorce rate getting higher as, you know, as things have changed in our society. And I think we should talk just a little bit about that. So one of the first things they mentioned was that we are all living longer lives. So, Mike, what do you think the average length of a marriage is? What would you guess if you had to guess? Average? Ooh, um, 15 years. Yeah, you know, I think I would have thought that too. But it is actually 8.2 years. That's all? That's it. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So half of them are lasting less than eight years. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, The second thing that they talked about was women and financial freedom that has changed over over the decades. So between 1970 and 2010, and that's really the study that I was looking at because it doesn't go past 2010, um, the percentage of married women in the labor market rose from 40% to 61%. And I'm guessing it's much higher than that now, although with COVID, it's backed down a bit. This phenomenon called the pink pandemic has, has hit women in employment disproportionately. Yeah. So it will be interesting how that affects the divorce rate, because, again, when women are out of the workforce, they are more dependent and kind of strapped or trapped or whatever you want to call it in marriages that they might otherwise escape. Um, So this is going to be an interesting three years when we talk about divorce, although I think Bruce and Carol both said that they believe that that is still happening more because – no matter what the financial situation is, women and men just don't want to be married anymore. It's too hard. <laughs> and do you remember them saying that in their home state of California, there was a backlog of people who had built up 
awaiting the reopening of the county offices the where divorces and, could be filed. Yeah. And there was a surge of yeah. that yeah. as soon as they reopened. Yeah. I mean, COVID has been difficult yeah. in terms of uh, people not being able to get away from each other. They're always with each other. And it has just, I mean, maybe the average length of a marriage is going to be less than 8.2 years in this time period. And then the last thing was that uh, Carol mentioned that the stigma is waning. Now, I don't want to say it's gone um, because there are people who believe that there are reasons why marriages still should be for your whole life, no matter how long you live. It's interesting because our own grandchildren have combinations of grandparents who are longtime married, divorced, widowed, and a grandparent with a partner. So all of those things have affected our own 10 grandchildren. I mean, that's just us. So you know that in some ways that stigma has kind of lessened because these children, these grandchildren, are growing up with it. They're accepting it as a new, tr- as a, well, for them, it's the, normal. The reality for us, it's a new reality. Right, right. Because for many of us growing up, we just had two sets of grandparents who were married for life. And I didn't see this coming. If you had asked me 15 years ago if we now would have this much variety among the grandparents in our children's extended families, yeah. I would have said, no way. Yeah, I know. It just kind of is crazy how things have changed. So. Um, I'm going to admit here that I've been watching a lot of shows about marriage in the last month. That would include parenthood, kind of binge-watching parenthood again. Um, This is Us, and um, then this other show that I'm going to talk to you about. But it's interesting, uh, even watching parenthood and This Is Us. I I don't know how many of you have uh, watched parenthood, but as I'm watching through it, I really, I love it, but I hate it because there's so much conflict. I mean, there's all these different kinds of marriages that we're seeing and there's just so much conflict. They're fighting all the time and there's a lot of arguing and after a while I, I get really worked up. It is a television drama. I know. We it's have to not give it that. reality. Um, this is us. I feel like is more something palatable for me. I can understand it a little better. I really like it. But both of them are really interesting to me. Now, there's a new miniseries on the scene that is on HBO right now, and I'm not necessarily touting it as the best thing I've ever seen. But I have to say it was quite disturbing, but very interesting. I was taking copious notes because I was just really interested in how they were viewing marriage. There are two versions of it on HBO right now, and it's called Scenes from a Marriage. And there's one that was made 48 years ago in 1973. So that was a movie. And then there's a new version, and it, it stars Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. So this is a new kind of reinterpretation and it addresses some of those things that were in the old version and it both of them are exploring the disintegration of a marriage between a couple. But in the HBO version you've got this limited series that reexamines the dilemmas probed by the original and it flips the script on traditional gender roles, which is so interesting. So all of a sudden, Jessica Chastain is kind of taking the male role by being the breadwinner and the power person. And then this Oscar Isaac is taking the role of the female, more 
he's the child caregiver and all that. Is it oversimplifying it to say that in the original movie, the husband was the bad guy and in the miniseries, it's the wife? No, I don't really think so. So okay. if, if you watch it and, and remember that I'm not necessarily saying, I mean, it, it, it's pretty uh, raw. And so there are some things in it that I would necess- wouldn't necessarily not recommend. Not family friendly. Yeah. But it is fascinating to me because of the switch in the gender roles, which is so funny because like in the first one that was done 48 years ago, I kind of, I definitely thought, oh, well, yeah, I get it. That's that's how it works. You know, he has an affair, blah, blah, blah. And she's devastated. But then when you see it the other way around and you see this woman, it just seems so odd. Like, wow, she's, she's just very, like, how is she being so emotionally dead to her husband. How can that happen? How could she do that to him? You know, the poor guy or whatever. And so I find myself way more, um, I don't know, sympathetic to the man, which is so interesting because it's just so weird to see it when it's switched like that. Anyway, in the newer version, Marianne asks, can two people spend a lifetime together? And her husband replies, it's a ridiculous convention passed down from God knows where. A five-year contract would be ideal. Or an agreement subject to renewal, which is so interesting <laughs> because I'm thinking, you know, wow, where that was not in the original. This is something new, this idea of, well, maybe we should have a five-year contract. I wonder if that would ever stick. I wonder if that might be the future of marriage. What do you think? Well, well, there'd have to be so much that would change for um, marriage which has, you know, long legs legally, socially, you know, for, for it to be reconceived popularly as something that could only last five years. I, I, I hesitate to say, but I kind of do think that if over the last 40 years of our relationship, if we had gone through seven renewal cycles, <laughs> I don't think we would have gotten a signature on all of them. <laughs> Well, I mean, that is the case, isn't it? Because, I mean, marriages go through stages. They don't, it's not all wonderful. So, you know, if you hit it at the right place or the wrong place, depending on how you look at it, it might be, yeah, it might be that that would, it would be over. Now, if you ask some people, they would argue that marriage is definitely not a ridiculous convention and they know exactly where it came from. If you ask some people, the convention of marriage and marriage lasting forever. But for other people, you know, the stigma is largely gone and they don't see it being something that they need that needs to keep going. So, you know, there are there are still people on both sides, people who believe strongly that marriage is for life and those who are like, hey, if it's not working, just get out of it. It's just not worth the effort. So and it does take a lot of effort. As you and I know, we've been together yeah. for 40 years. You know, it's funny. You just mentioned if it's not working, get out of it is something that never entered the conversations in my family, my nuclear family. We didn't want that to be part of our nuclear family. Yeah. Yet, uh, as we have talked to mental health care professionals over time, as, mm-hmm. I've, as I've seen, you know, counselors over time, that enters the conversation. And it was shocking the first time I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I think that that kind of releases pressure. Like if you have a pressure-filled stage that you're going through in your marriage, 
just to think about it as a possibility kind of releases some of that pressure. And I think maybe in some ways that's what a healthcare professional is trying to do for you. Like, let's think through what this would feel like if you did this. Yeah, I see that now, but I was pretty surprised at the time. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want to talk about marriage in terms of three acts. Beginning, the middle, the end. There's a structure to a three-act play. Like if you took a playwriting course, you would have act one, which is the setup, and you would have act two, which is the confrontation, and act three, which is the resolution. And, you know, I did some reading on how that works in terms of playwriting and all that. And it's kind of interesting to me because while I was thinking about it in terms of writing a play, I also was thinking about the audience in a three-act play. So let me just posit this idea. Um, you know, Bruce talked about the middle time of marriage where there's a lot of housekeeping and Carol talked about empty nesting, which um, I want to talk about in in a different way, act three, as opposed to empty nesting. Um, so act one, the setup. This is when the audience is most invested and supported. And I'm not talking about marriage as something that we're putting on a show. But what I'm trying to say is when you are in act one of your marriage, you get a lot of support. You have wedding showers, you have engagement parties, you have baby showers. There's so much happening and lots of applause in the, in a way. You know, I'm speaking not in literal terms, but you get parents, siblings, everybody's behind you. There's a ton of joy. It's really fun and an exciting time. Then you get to act two which is the confrontation part of the structure of a play. And here's where all the details start getting in the way. There's, uh, you know, the feeling of we don't get enough or give enough. Lives are full of little evasions and restrictions. And, I mean, let's face it, when you're in that confrontation stage, for the people who are supporting you, it starts to get a little dicey. People aren't as involved. Would you say that? I, re I remember feeling uh, several times people that we would consult um, would have an attitude of, well, you know, that's kind of your problem to work out now. Yeah. Or, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, and, and I feel like we've done that with our own children. You know, there have been times when they've come to us and we've been, well, we can't really get in between. You know, that's a, it's a really tough spot as a grandparent or as a parent. You don't want to get in between what's happening in all of that, all the little details, all the housekeeping. Well, that would that would amount to unsolicited advice, which we found out the hard way you have to be <laughs> awfully careful yeah, about. Yeah, you don't want to be giving unsolicited advice. But even when they've come for advice, we've often had to say, you know, you'll have to go back to your spouse or, or talk to a counselor. Don't talk to us about it because we can't be in the middle. We can't triangulate. That's just not... That's not good form. Good so there you are. Here we are, act two, confrontation. Things are getting a little bit messy. Audience is disengaging Audience just a little bit. disengaging. <laughs> and then we get to act three, which is the resolution. And that's where, I mean, let's face it, the audience often falls asleep or walks out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying that in a way of like, I don't know. You know, you get older, your friends die, they move away. The, all of a sudden, it's feeling a little bit more lonely, more like it's just the two of you. And, you know, the resolution has to happen one way or the other. But in this weird confluence of 
the television you've been watching, the guests you interviewed, and the conversation we've been having uh, 18 months into the pandemic, <laughs> suddenly <laughs> options are on the table yeah. that were verboten or yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's not like we're taking any of those options. We're not using the podcast to announce some big structural change to our marriage. <laughs> but the conversations didn't happen before. No. So, yes, COVID has definitely changed that. And what we're saying is to you, the listeners, we hear you. We see you. This is not <laughs> an easy time. So there's just the two of you. And there's lots of words in the series, Scenes from a Marriage, about that time, whether you want to call it Act 3 or you want to call it empty nesting or what do you want to call it? They're not even empty nesters at this point. But the words that are used are things like dematerialize. You are invisible. You cancel each other out. Those things are what are what's happening in the scenes from a marriage. The last act, you know, it requires some rearranging, some figuring out who you are after so many years of being lost to duty to the things you have to do, which are no longer there anymore. I mean, you're not driving your kids around to play practice or to to soccer or to tennis or any of those things. So all of a sudden, you recognize that maybe you don't know who you are anymore and you don't know what you like anymore. And I think that does start in the second act. I really do. But at, by the third act, it's pretty intense. You know, there's this quote from the first scenes from a marriage, the one, the movie that was like made 48 years ago, where she says, I've never considered what I want, but only what does he want me to want? And so she realizes that she thought she was being unselfish by kind of retreating into nothingness. Like we often call it being a doormat, but I don't even know if that's it. I think that she just dematerialized. Like she she kind of disappears. She becomes invisible. And then she realizes, she says, she's looking at pictures of herself when she's really young, black and white pictures of herself as a child and then as a young woman. And she realizes that she's lost herself. And she says, um, it's not unselfishness. Like I wasn't being unselfish by doing what I was doing with my husband. It was cowardice. Like even worse, it stems from being ignorant of who I am. So she takes on some of the blame and she says, I need to figure out who I am. You know, we've been there. We're still going through that. Who are we outside of the people that we take care of? Who are we outside of ourselves and our children and our grandchildren? And so, you know, you can continue that in with your grandchildren where you just like pouring yourself into the grandchildren. But eventually the grandchildren become teenagers and they go to college and they are not there. And so, you know, eventually that has to happen, that you have to kind of come to know yourself. So after all this thinking, I'm wondering if it's true that a perfect marriage is just two imperfect people who refuse to give up on each other. I guess if you hang in there, it is. But for many who choose to opt out, the best marriage is one that has ended. That's sad, isn't it? But I think it might be true. In fact, in both versions of Scenes from a Marriage, the couples get divorced and then they meet up with each other occasionally. Like, I think... You get the feeling that it's almost every year they get together. And I mean they get together. They're not just having coffee. 
They are better people now, and they both conclude, and this is the conclusion that is in the movie, the first movie, the older movie, we love each other in our earthly, imperfect way. You know, no matter what, I think it's a good idea not to judge a marriage from the outside looking in. Instead, maybe just support it. Everybody that you know is married, support them as much as you can, no matter what, because those relationships are fragile and important. So let's give a round of applause to those in Act 1, 2, or 3, and maybe those who have bowed out. They need the support we can offer as well. All relationships require vulnerability and adaptability, but none more than a long-lived marriage. We've talked about so many parts of that in the last two episodes, and as you've listened, I wonder where you are on the spectrum of your marriage relationship. What act are you in? One, two, three? Wherever you find yourself, let's commit to being as flexible and resilient as we can. That all requires a good deal of patience and practice. So let's go to the mat as I share what I've learned about how to flex my relationship muscles with my husband. And maybe you can think about what you might need to do to flex yours. I left it behind, and now I've lost it. It was once a defining part of who I was, and now I'm just not sure where it went. I'm talking about my sense of humor. When I was a child, the youngest of three, I took on the role of making people laugh. I have a distinct memory of declining to play a game with my cousins just so I could sit around the kitchen table with my parents and aunts and uncles in order to entertain them. My mom often said I should write a newspaper column like Irma Bombeck. Remember her? I wasn't a joke teller, but I definitely saw the funny side of things until, until, I don't know when. When or where did I lose my sense of humor? I wonder if it was when I graduated from high school a year early and left for college right as I turned 17. Or maybe it happened because I was going to college 1,200 miles from home, or maybe majoring in English Lit and taking lots of philosophy classes. It's hard to stay jovial when you're reading Kierkegaard and Sartre. I have no idea what happened, but I started taking myself so seriously. And by the time I was in grad school, I think I was a bit of a bore. There were glimmers of my sense of humor after I got married and started having children. The kids remember me happily miming my way up and down pretend stairs behind the kitchen counter like Marcel Marceau. For them, I dressed up in costumes and took on foreign accents when I would read stories aloud. When they would relay to my husband something that I had done... I would keep a straight face and say, I don't know what you're talking about, to their gales of laughter. But that was then, and this is now. My audience, our children, are grown and gone, and when they come home with their own children, I am often so wrapped up in entertaining the masses with great hospitality that I can't be entertaining in any other way. I have decided lately that our marriage has also suffered because I can't find the humor in things. 
I think we both find that difficult. So many discussions end in frustration. A ride in the car can turn into a debate stage. I could blame the previous election or COVID or a number of things, but honestly, I have not been practicing the art of looking on the sunny side of life for a long time now. And I do think it takes practice. I was just at the container store the other day when I saw a poster that said, Sparking Joy with Marie Kondo. Now, if you don't know her philosophy, it involves decluttering your life by ridding yourself of anything that doesn't give you joy. Surely I'm not the only one tempted to relegate my husband to the goodwill pile because he doesn't light me up all the time. I mean, 40 years is a long time to be married. It's easy to blame your partner for much of what goes wrong in a marriage, but realistically, I don't believe a divorce would ultimately bring my sense of humor back. I think I have to stop believing that my sense of humor will be returned to me by somebody else or by the absence of someone else. I also need to stop visiting the lost and found to see where I left it. Instead, I think I need to create a new kind of joy, one that finds humor in the day-to-day, where I learn to forgive and forget more easily, to brush off the hurts and not take things too personally. Instead, I need to hold on tightly to the joy that comes from knowing that life is short, and getting shorter. Maybe I just need to take a chill pill, take a walk, meditate, enjoy a delicious meal, go on a trip. Goodbye, existential, and hello, experiential. After all, life is grand, right? Isn't there a podcast about that? Oh yeah, maybe I need to listen to that. If you have thoughts to contribute to this podcast, I hope you'll email us at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 317-572-7876. We would love to hear from you. Your conversations about this topic matter to us, and it's something I know comes up in many homes, so please reach out to us. In the meantime, remember to practice joy when you can and find peace where you can. I'm Emily Morgan. And I'm Mike Morgan. And thank you for joining us in Living the Grand Life.